Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tectonic Shifts. My name is Zach Barlow, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben, ben Gold. Hello. And we are here kind of take you on a journey. I mean, we, we definitely just want to, we want to talk about technology. We want to try our best to break it down. Both Ben and I are in the uh, tech industry, and we just think that there's so much news and so many things being thrown around every week, every day almost, that it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to digest. And, and we are starting this project just because we want to help you with that while also kind of working to digest it ourselves. We just kind of want to go on a journey together with all of this and, and try to sift through the, the cutting edge stuff and what, what makes sense on a societal level, global level, but then also on a personal level. So that's the project. We're going to be doing multiple episodes, different kind of forms of episodes. We'll be doing uh, news episodes. We'll be doing um, interviews with experts. And then we'll also just be doing deep dives on things that I think are important. This is Tectonic Shifts, and thank you so much for listening. This is going to be our first episode. We're really excited to be able to roll this out. Yeah, and this has been a work in progress for quite a while, so excited to be here. Ben, do you have anything to add? Yeah, first of all, I promise we will get better at this. Um, (laughs) You know, we're we're both really just dipping our toes into being able to record, to podcast, to build up this sort of bank of episodes. But I think most importantly, what we're really focused on doing, as Zach said, is just to explain, to understand uh, a lot of these technologies that we deal with every day, artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality. Uh, These are socially shifting technologies. They have changed the way that society itself is interacting with, well, itself. And because of that, your lives, no matter if you are interested in technology or not, no matter if you use the internet or not, your lives are going to be impacted by uh, AI, by machine learning, and by all of these different technologies. As Zach said, we're on a journey to help you and also help us understand just how lives are going to be changing today and in the near future. It is said that we are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution. That is true. And it is an intelligence revolution. I guess we're just going to be seeing how far this revolution goes over over the next couple of years. So thank you for joining us. We will get better. Stick with us and we're going to be awesome. All right. So with that, we have a couple articles that we wanted to go through this week, things that we thought were really important. So uh, Ben, why don't you start us off? Yes. So during a commencement speech at Stanford University, Apple CEO Tim Cook spoke about the fact that Silicon Valley creates chaos and makes a significant number of mistakes. He said, today we gather at a moment that demands some reflections, fueled by caffeine and code, optimism and idealism conviction, and creativity. Generations of Stanford graduates and dropouts have used technology to remake our society. But I think you would agree that lately the results haven't been neat or straightforward. In just the four years that you've been here, things feel like they've taken a sharp turn. Crisis has tempered optimism. Consequences have challenged idealism. And reality has shaken blind faith. But lately it seems this industry is becoming better known for a less noble innovation. The belief that you can claim credit without accepting responsibility. We see it every day now, with every data breach, every privacy violation, every blind eye turned to hate speech, fake news, poisoning our national conversation. The false miracles in exchange for a single drop of your blood. It feels a bit crazy that anyone has to say this, but if you built a chaos factory, you can't dodge responsibility for the chaos. Taking responsibility means having the courage to think things through. Hmm. If you have a chance, watch the entire speech because it is actually fantastic. And while Cook does not mention Google or Facebook by name, he is very much implying that these are two of the biggest perpetrators of this chaos. Mm. Um, I mean, it's really, uh, if you chart the the history of, of Facebook and of Google, they have really turned into these behemoths of data and you know, they utilize this data to personalize your experience all over the web. They really have their fingers in pretty much every single piece of pie that we have. They are in our phones. They are in our computers. They are also in our homes through devices such as Facebook's portal and Google's Nest. And 
Apple, especially under Tim Cook, has really tried to separate itself from this pack with a emphasis on privacy. So it's within Cook's own you know, selling point to tout Apple's privacy laws uh, and Apple's approach to privacy and how the fact that these other two major social networks and, and companies are really just playing fast and loose with your data to the point of it's becoming a real danger to society. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw in in 2016, there were uses of fake news and of spreading discord and creating fake events, which were designed to drive a wedge within American society just up to the elections. And it worked. You know, there were reports of people showing up for events in different cities in America that were organized by the Russian military bots um, and the, the different Russian hackers. So there is more than enough ample evidence to show that social networks like Facebook and um, companies like Google are a danger to our society. And Apple sees itself as the white hat sheriff, the white knight who is, you know, safeguarding the the privacy of its users. Yeah. And and I, you know, you can't really, you can't ignore how Facebook has been represented in the news lately. You know what I mean? I think that to say that these social networks cause chaos, the first thing I think of is, well, I mean, maybe you really believe that, but also it seems financially in your favor to sell that idea based on who you are and what you represent. So what I mean by that is, I mean, he's the CEO of Apple. Apple's kind of their thing is security or so they say, and they haven't really been in the news for uh, a bunch of data breach. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but so I think it makes sense to say like, you know, these other companies are messing up, but we're, we're doing great, but you can't ignore what Facebook has been doing in in the news lately with all the data breaches and the Mm -hmm. fake news and, you know, the, the testimonies in, in DC and and all these things. So I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to say, like, are these social networks causing chaos? I think that's kind of the question, right? Like that's the the center of this. I mean, Um, I think that I would say number one, chaos is incredibly subjective. And number two, the chaos can only be caused if there are fertile minds that are, willing to accept the division. And so, and what I mean by that is that I can see white supremacist uh, propaganda on, on the internet, but I am not a white supremacist. I do not believe in white supremacy and it would have no impact other than to anger me. It's only if I'm willing to accept in some way that sort of propaganda yeah, um, or that sort of fake news that, you know, it can take root. And so, yes, absolutely. Facebook does have a lot of, a huge amount of responsibility uh, in the propagation of fake news and of, you know, this sort of chaos. But it's equally important to remember that we as a society are incredibly diverse, the wrong term, I would say that we we are sometimes more willing to be divided. You know, sometimes, you know, we're being centered into sort of these sorts of different tribes. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that the the truth is kind of to your point, Facebook isn't kind of really doing anything, right? I mean, yes, there's the bots and, and so on and so forth. And, and those are problematic for a a ton of reasons. But ultimately, Facebook is just giving people a platform to say what they feel. And so perhaps, just perhaps, it's actually not Facebook causing the chaos, but the fact that Facebook is this giant mirror, right? People are like, there's hateful people like these white supremacists and other people who are spreading these fake news and trolls and so on and so forth. But Facebook doesn't really have a ton to do with that. They, They just kind of opened up this platform for people to be able to post stuff and now we're ha- we're seeing all of this chaotic stuff i mean sure facebook is is not an innocent entity in this conversation by any means not whatsoever but i just think it's important to remember that a lot of the stuff that that have happened or is happening on facebook that that is causing trouble are really the people behind it right the, the keyboard warriors that are making it happen i mean i just think i think that we should address that as well because I think oh, oftentimes yeah. we just talk about Facebook and how terrible it is and so on and so forth. And it's all the company's fault. But there's there's I mean, there's people behind the keyboards that are making this happen, too. And I just think we should include them in the conversation. Absolutely. My question here is that it is uh, illegal to in a crowded shit in a crowded theater shout fire. Uh, because you cause a panic, which can cause people to riot and to storm out and people can be trampled. Is that true? Yeah, it's illegal to call it to. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, it is. It's. It's considered one of the limits of free speech. Okay. And so you can't 
God, I'm thinking of the word uh, uh, incite. I'm sorry, I need my coffee. Um, you can't incite people to violence. And so then the question is, at what point does a post become, you know, switch from fake news to an actual incitement to violence? And then who is the judge of, is that considered an incitement? Man, I, I feel like that question could be a whole podcast. I think uh, that yeah. question could be easily a whole episode. I mean, that... I think I think that we are in a time in in human history where I mean we're we're traveling on ground that is not has never been traveled on before and one of the things the major things is this idea of free speech that you that you mentioned and and who regulates that and wh- what's okay to say and what's not okay to say and it's just complicated. Like the complexities of that question, it's just a lot to unpack. I mean, I know that might sound like a cop-out answer, but I don't know. I mean, it's not an easy – I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, that's it's that's a I tough one. I mean, what do you think? Uh, well, I think we'll have to get a couple of First Amendment lawyers in here to, to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, as well as some philosophers. Uh, so yeah, that'll definitely we can have a roundtable with uh, with academics. Um, that actually sounds like an awesome episode. We should do that. But here's the big question: Can the social networks? Can Facebook? Can Twitter? Can I was about to say Google Plus, but no one uses Google Plus. <laughs> um, can Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., be reformed? Can they police themselves better to remove the sort of uh, hateful content because we may talk about the the limits of, of free speech, but it's important to remember that Facebook, that Twitter, that Instagram do not adhere to free speech and they don't have to. These are private organizations. They are companies which have their own terms of use that they can set. And so Facebook could very easily say no white supremacist content. They could easily say, you know, All news has to go through a filter of journalists who can say what is and what is not fake. Twitter actually was being criticized quite a bit recently about how it allows so many Nazis, and when I say Nazis, I mean like actual white supremacist Nazis, on their platform. And why could they not just kick all of the Nazis off? To which Mm -hmm. they replied that the this was internally said, this is not a public statement, that it would... If they create an algorithm algorithm to do so, it would ban too many members of the Republican Party. Now, that touches on a whole other can <laughs> of worms. Yeah. But the fact that we have two types of speech, um, one that is considered legitimate political discourse and the other that is considered hate speech, that are mirroring each other so much that Twitter's own algorithms couldn't identify and remove these sorts of you know bad actors really does say something, A, about the failure of its own technology, but also B, about how, as you're saying, we bring the mirror up to society. And sometimes we see things that we don't necessarily want to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Sometimes we see things that we don't necessarily want to see. And sometimes it gives people a platform to spread ideas that are disagreeable or downright offensive or just wrong. But I mean... I guess I guess the one thing that I will say is that the, the failure of technology of these algorithms for for catching these things. I mean, I, again, I don't think Twitter is innocent by by any means, but think about the ask here, right? Like think about the ask that 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 we have for these these social media giants now. I need you to write a, a algorithm that can capture hate speech and then take it off of the social platforms. But hate speech overall is is subjective i mean there's things that we can all collectively agree on that suck like nazis nazis suck but it's just more intricate than that i mean there's there's a lot of things that people say when somebody could report it but it it shouldn't have been reported you just disagree you know what i mean and that's okay we can disagree but it's not necessarily hateful so it's just these it's funny that we're talking about this in in the social media context because i think that a lot of you know ultimately we are kind of asking these social media companies to figure out that question that, that we were kind of circling around a couple of minutes ago, which is what is free speech and where are those lines and how can we kind of make 
the this social network experience and this internet experience better, but also not infringe upon that. And that's not what they're really here to do. I mean, they didn't ever want that job. Like they didn't, they didn't, I don't think anybody saw that as a as a result of what they created. They're just tech. There's it's just a tech company, like like any tech company that you or I have worked for, or anybody else. I mean, they just had an idea, they had a product, they wrote the code. You know, they're 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 a bunch of developers, and now we're asking these developers to define this super philosophical question, and it's going to have like impacts throughout society. And I just think that it's complex. It's oh, super God, it's super complex. super complex. But I think we can. I mean, I agree. I think we should continue to dive into it throughout the course of this project bring people on and try to ask them and pick their brain about it because i mean it's it's interesting and it's going to have implications for years and years and years to come uh yeah no absolutely it will i would say two things number one did mark zuckerberg uh eduardo sovereign and everyone else involved in the creation of facebook believe that the platform they were building would somehow have to be the arbiter of what is and is not free speech absolutely not yeah are they just developers? Yes, they're coders. Mark Zuckerberg is not a guy who is, I was about to say, in touch with his feelings, but I think I'd much rather say he is not someone who has a a great understanding of the philosophies of, you know, human kindness, more on a, a an academic level than anything else. But that doesn't give them an excuse. You know, they may not have imagined themselves in this situation, but they are in this situation. And because they have created something, they now have the responsibility to ensure that it is for the betterment of humanity. But I would add just one other thing, and that is that you said that we've never been here before. Um, Mm -hmm. We have. In the 1930s, Joseph Goebbels, excuse me, the 1920s, Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler utilized the radio to spread the propaganda of Nazism. No matter what, no matter who, no matter how, technology and platforms that utilize technology will always be used to spread as much hate as it does as much good. Because as we keep saying, that is just who we are as people. There are good people in the world. There are also some truly horrific people. And... I think we can just round up this little segment by saying that let's all try to be a bit better and don't be a Nazi because Nazis <laughs> suck. It's Nazis suck. All right. Well put. Well put. So next we're going to talk about IBM AI uh, helping to predict breast cancer. So IBM researchers have developed an AI model that can predict malignant breast cancer within a year with an 87% accuracy rate comparable to human radiologists. While there are already AI prediction methods that rely on either mammogram images or medical records, IBM stands out by using both, and it's potentially more reliable as a result. The IBM approach trains the AI with anonymized mammogram images, links to biomarkers such as uh, reproductive history and clinical data, allowing the creation of an algorithm with comparatively high accuracy. It can reduce the chance of a bad diagnosis by establishing connections between traits you wouldn't spot in imagery alone, such as iron deficiencies and thyroid function. IBM even pulls in data from biopsies, lab tests, cancer registries, and codes from other diagnosis and procedures. Uh, You wouldn't want to rely solely on the algorithm to make predictions, especially when it correctly interprets just 77% of non-cancerous instances. However, the accuracy is good enough that it can serve as a second set of eyes according to IBM. So we have this AI predicting cancer, helping people diagnose cancer, which I think is beautiful. It's a kind of a positive spin on technology and what it can bring to humanity. What do you think? Well, I think that AI is currently in being infused at every single level of medicine. And that's a good thing. It can, as we can see here, be used to identify cancerous cells or or tumors. It can be used to speed up the patient inferral process. It can be used to uh, recommend diets. It can be personalized for people. It can be personalized, excuse me, for, for, for patients. It can be personalized for doctors. Giving All of this gives a doctor uh, a 
better understanding of what you're going through, of creating treatment plans, of how they can best move you from sick to healthy. And that's, you know, honestly, there are a few things wrong with that, provided it is supervised to the best of its ability. Uh, Never completely trust AI, I I will say, because technology can get things wrong, but always have faith in it. Trust and verify. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I I don't think that it's hard for me to imagine a world where doctors get fully replaced. I mean, you know, I think that anything's possible. Technology continues to change. It continues to improve. And if you want to try to take that kind of angle at it and then push it forward 50 years or 60, 70 years or 20, I don't know, then I mean, sure, that's it's, it's imaginable. But it's just hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around that world. So, but, but I do think that it can help doctors, right? I mean, that's, that, that's what's happening here. I mean, IBM even says, you know, this isn't going to replace a doctor, right? But it could help. And so I just think that's, that is kind of the core of what technology should be used for and what it is. I mean, it, it just improves and helps humanity get healthier in this instance. But overall, um, if AI is going to help us in any way, you know, then, then it's great. And it's, and it's why we, we use technology, I think. So I think overall, this is great. I just don't see it replacing doctors. I don't know. What do you think? No, I I don't believe this would replace doctors. I think that when it comes to the use of technology in medicine, in my experience, medicine is both the most embracing of technology and at the same time, one of the most conservative um, embraces of technology. It's yes, I agree. That's a bit of a dichotomy, but it's also true because, you know, the, there are huge advances in medicine on the theoretical level, but it takes a very long time for those sort of, uh, conceptual ideas to filter themselves down into how medicine itself is being practiced. So while we may have this great technology now that's being used to detect breast cancer, it's still going to be several years until that is being deployed in a surgery in New York, Seattle, San Francisco, and then even further until it's being considered more widespread into rural areas and then globally into areas that are just, you know, barely touched on by technology, some parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so while incredibly optimistic about this technology, anything that can help us identify cancer earlier is fantastic. I guess don't expect to see it at your local radiologist anytime soon. Yeah, agreed. All right. On a a fun note here, new game, new game, new AR game. I'm sure uh, it's super popular. I mean, just this weekend alone, a lot of people have been talking to me about it on their phones. Everybody was kind of waiting for it. It's a Niantic's Pokemon Go version, but Harry Potter. So Niantic has released a version of the augmented reality Harry Potter game similar to their hit Pokemon Go. The game will encourage players to walk around and interact with uh, digital beings through their smartphone. With the game releasing, fans are excited to blend their muggle world with the wizarding. Yeah, this is just fun. This is awesome. I mean, I haven't played the game yet. I'm going to. Uh, I know you have. I heard it's really it's pretty much exactly like Pokemon Go, but just more complicated. But I know that you have it on your phone. So what what do you think? I am enjoying it, but I am also a huge fan of a fan of uh, uh, Harry Potter. I was never a fan of Pokemon. That sort of craze just passed by me in in primary school. But I I came on to Harry Potter a bit later in life. Watched the movies and then read the books. I know I should have done it the other way around, but I, this is how I did it. And when I downloaded it. You know, it was very similar interface to uh, Pokemon Go. So if you've played that, it's going mm-hmm. to be incredibly familiar. But I was also able to just bring my phone up and there is uh, uh, Hagrid. And then there is, you know, Harry Potter. And it's really just great to see all of these different characters that I have uh, read about, that I have watched, and then being able to interact with them literally in my own street. And then to just start of, uh, uh, you know, contribute to this this gaming world my wife and i are actually going to we've set some time aside this afternoon uh we're going to run around a neighborhood with our phones up and and play the game because that's what geeky couples do (laughs) 
and you know i i'm enjoying it and i'm actually really enjoying the blurring of the lines between reality and gaming i'm being able to incorporate elements of my own real life into this sort of of gaming world because it really does create a much more visceral emotional reaction and it's very engaging and i'm i'm very much enjoying it is there a um, PvP aspect to this game? Is there like any type of battling once you capture monsters? Because I know that was a that was a thing. Like the the gyms in Pokemon Go was was really popular. Uh, I believe there is, but I've not yet experienced it. Okay, all right, yeah. So Pokemon I've Go. Just been, I've just been going around and and uh, casting spells on things. I mean, that's that's living the dream. I know that's that's awesome. <laughs> and I think that, you know, as Apple, Google, Facebook, whomever bring out, uh, you know, augmented reality glasses, it's I'm no longer going to have to look through my phone screen. I will just simply be able to look and there is, you know, a monster right in front of me. That is probably where the future of gaming is going. It's going to be this mixing between reality and gaming in which the real world becomes its own gaming world. Yeah, and I think we're we're pretty close. I mean, I haven't heard of of specifically their plans to release AR glasses, but if they're not already on the market, I'm sure they're coming within the next maybe year or two. So, and the, I'm sure the, they'll be popular, really popular. Yeah, no, the rumor says uh, 2020 or beyond. Yeah, absolutely, that makes sense. Okay, and keeping with the AR subject, YouTube's AR ads let you try on virtual makeup alongside beauty vloggers. Starting this summer, Google will let users experiment with augmented reality makeup in YouTube. The idea is to use the experience like an interactive ad. You watch a beauty vlogger talking about a specific brand of cosmetic, and a new virtual try-on feature will show you how you could look while wearing the product. MAC Cosmetics is the first brand to launch an AR beauty try-on campaign. Google is positioning the new feature as a way of getting more people's attention compared to a non-interactive video ad. The company says that during its testing, it found 30% of people activated the AR experience and spent an average of 80 seconds trying on virtual lipstick. However, it's unclear how much of this attention is due to the technology's novelty. So this isn't the first time that AR has invaded the beauty space. I believe a year or two ago, Sephora launched an application that allowed you to try on different types of brands, um, and then you can order from within the app. Yep. I mean, we actually, we worked on that. Yeah. Little plug. We worked, we worked at a company that, that worked on that. So I, when I, when I see this, what I see is not so much of a breakthrough in technology, but more of a breakthrough on in marketing. Yes. I I see this as so you guys got the verge to write about this technology as if you came up with it or as if it's cutting edge and that's great, but the technology is already out there and so as you mentioned Sephora is already ha- has that application, but they just aren't getting the maybe notoriety that this is going to get. So I mean, I mean that, I think that's that, kind of how I see it. Yeah, I think that they're going to have a much larger platform. Um, and the reason I say that is because Sephora, you know, the Sephora app is only available to X amount of people who are on a particular type of uh, phone operating system, a certain version of Android, a certain, certain version of iOS, yeah. and only available in certain countries. YouTube, on the other hand, is available everywhere on multiple platforms. It's, you know, predominantly they'll watch it on their web browser, but, you know, they're basically considering the popularity of some of these these beauty vloggers and you know of that you're talking about people with millions of subscribers you know the technology is just going to explode because you now have so many people so many more people that have access to it and that are able to really enjoy the technologies yes the novelty but also this is very much the future of, of retail marketing. You know, the next generation of, of mirrors that are going to be put in clothing stores, you're not even going to have to try something on. You're just oh, simply going to be great. Oh, yeah. We'll Can't wait. I hate trying stuff on. I know. You're just going to stand in front of the mirror, pick an outfit, and then it's going to appear on you. And then you're going to see just exactly how 
you look and you can spin around, you can see it from the back. And this is what the retail experience is going to be. So what this does is it takes that exact same technology of Venom Reality, shrinks it into your laptop or your iPhone or your, your iPad, um, and it allows you to try on makeup without even leaving bed. And that is the next generation of shopping. So I, I just hope we're, uh, uh, we're all prepared for it. I'm, I'm ready. I mean, I think that I, I look at this as um, just an improvement. I think that... Uh, and I think that, you know, it's it's kind of a logical step. I mean, I think that Snapchat's been dealing a lot with this, with their facial recognition mm-hmm. and filtering technology. And I think it's it's quite logical for makeup in, the makeup industry and the beauty industry to take that same idea, but slightly uh, modify it so it can so you can try on makeup on your phone and, and see what you like. I think that uh, it's pro- it's like any technology is going to improve over time. But overall, I mean, I'm, I'm here for it. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that the important thing to remember is that the cameras that we have inside our computers, inside our phones, inside our iPads, are becoming more and more advanced every single day. You know, the way that it is able to sense depth, the way that it is able to track our own facial features, the the twitching of our mouths, you know, sticking out our tongues, things like that. If you take a look at Apple's uh, Animoji, which are these little facial you know, uh, uh, emojis that make up your face. Um, that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, they are, you know, they're basically creating emojis of your own face through the phone's camera. They can be incredibly detailed, you know, being able to look when you're smiling, when you're frowning, and able to replicate that sort of reaction on your phone's, on your phone screen, on the emoji. So yeah, this sort of technology is just simply, as you're saying, become so much better. Yep, I agree. Uh, Moving on, Facebook is planning to launch a cryptocurrency it hopes will transform the global economy. The currency, named Libra, is being developed by Facebook, but the company intends to share control with a consortium of organizations, including venture capital firms, credit card companies, and other tech giants. At launch, you'll be able to send Libra inside of Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp, with it mostly being meant as an intermediary for transferring traditional currencies. Eventually, Facebook hopes Libra will be accepted as a form of payment and other financial services will be built on top of its blockchain-based network. Facebook is also launching a subsidiary company, Calibra, which will develop products and services based around Libra. It's where Facebook intends to make money off of the cryptocurrency, and it will be starting with the launch of its digital wallet. Calibra will also handle Libra integrations for Facebook's other products. Given Facebook's lofty goals and its reputation for disregarding the privacy and exacerbating immense political and social issues throughout the world, as we literally just spoke about, the announcement of Libra was followed by immediate backlash from regulators. Facebook will have a lot of questions to answer ahead of the currency's launch in the first half of 2020. Okay, okay, so I would say that we are preparing an entire episode on yeah, this because yeah. this is huge. So we got I think we got we should just we need to try to keep this high level because I think that I mean we could this is a lot. This is big. So yeah, just if you're listening to the listeners, this is going to be a full episode, but we're just going to kind of touch on this now and then dive into it next time. So I will say I love this and I hate this. And the reason is because, you know, we have huge areas of the world where there is no banking system. We have parts of our lives that are intertwined in incredibly archaic banking system. If I want to transfer money from Australia, from, from um, America to my family in Australia, it costs me 20, 30 bucks just for a transfer wire fee, whereas this will be able to do it in, in firstly, in seconds. It will be available in seconds. It normally takes uh, 48 to 72 hours for the, my money to appear in the Australian bank account. Wait, you can't Venmo um, your family? No, Venmo isn't available outside of America. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Crazy. And actually, look, that's a good point. Venmo, the Cash App, etc. they're great, but they were, I think, always considered these sort of intermediaries between what could happen and what is happening in that they were set up to make life easier for people who wanted to transfer money to one another. Mm-hmm. 
but that's only available within certain countries. They're not available internationally because then you have international laws that you have to take into consideration. So you can only transfer X amount of dollars outside the country at any one time from one bank account to another without it, you know, without notifying the government, I would say. So hopefully what this would do would this would make people's lives much easier when trying to transfer person to person between company countries, excuse me. And the reason that's important is because we have become an increasingly globalized society mm-hmm. and our banking infrastructure and banking laws are still stuck in the 1800s. Hmm. And so the way that I see this, especially because they're backed by such huge financial firms like MasterCard and, you know, Facebook itself has this huge platform of users. This is going to be a lot of people's first experience with the idea of cryptocurrency. Yes, people may know what Bitcoin is, but I can assure you of those, hardly any of them actually have it, let alone know how to utilize it. And so what's going to happen is that at the press of a button in the first half of 2020, 1.2, 1.3 billion people are going to have access to a cryptocurrency wallet and are going to be able to utilize it. And that is going to be the game changer. For sure. I mean, this is a game changer. Your first reaction when you hear this is, I love it. My first reaction, and you hate it, yeah. My first reaction is, oh God, the fear. Like, just pure fear. Because, I mean, what we're talking about, I mean, if if you... scale it out and just say, you know, you know, just kind of imagine it being super successful. I mean, we're talking about a global currency at that point. We're talking about yeah. the f- kind of first ever uh, of its kind. But I will say that I'm not sure that it's going to get to that point. And that might be an unpopular opinion, but I just feel like right now, Facebook is not in the best of, of light. It's not very trusted. A lot of people you know, with the news and everything that Facebook's been through in the past year or two are kind of just looking at Facebook like, I, I don't know if I trust you, you're not really the good guy anymore to me. Mm-hmm. And be, based on that, I think that that's going to prevent users from wanting to use this mechanism. Like I think in a world where before all of this happened, when everybody was on Facebook and, 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 and I'm not saying Facebook's not popular today, because I mean, it is, but I just think that the news cycle and the overall kind of feeling of Facebook right now is going to prevent this from becoming that kind of game-changing world global currency, just another thing that Facebook needs to manage, you know, and and basically decider of of all humanity. I just don't think it's going to get there because people don't trust Facebook. I agree, but I would also temper that by saying that while people not may not trust Facebook... Facebook also owns WhatsApp. Facebook also has Facebook Messenger and Instagram, all of which are many of the primary ways that people interact these days and that Mm -hmm. they converse. Yeah. And building this sort of cryptocurrency into these popular social networking apps, and if, I just have to say, uh, if there's going to be any other major social networking app coming up, it's probably going to be bought by Facebook because that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're really going to see is that you're right. People may not trust Facebook, but a lot of people trust WhatsApp to send our most private conversations. True. Same thing with Messenger. We trust Instagram to you know send out all of our pictures. And so because of that, not necessarily because of Facebook itself, but I think because of its, its ancillary different arms – uh, and the different companies that it owns and social networks that it has control over, by implementing its Libra currency into that, we will see it picking up speed, uh, I think, faster than we can imagine. Now, I don't believe that it will become the global currency within you know, one year, but I can see it becoming a global currency within 10 years. If it gets support from regulators and if it gets support from enough financial institutions, I mean, we have to remember that WhatsApp is the primary method of communication for a lot of people. And if you can add the ability to send and receive cryptocurrency into that, especially in a secure currency, it's not risk of being snatched by anyone else, which Facebook is is promising. 
then I think that people will pick it up a lot more as we become a more and more cashless society. Yeah, I think the I think the main thing there is just convenience. You know, yes. Like I, I think there is a distrust for Facebook, and I, I have, and this is just my opinion. And I could be completely wrong, but I, I have my, I feel like Facebook has a bit of a negative kind of connotation to it, and I feel like Facebook Messenger also does, and so I kind of feel like that is kind of a, I, I can't see a lot of these transactions happening in in those platforms, but WhatsApp, I mean, WhatsApp feels like a good guy to me. And but WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. So these are these are great points. And at the end of the day, I think that it's so convenient. You know, I think that that's why Facebook has gotten to where it is, because it's just so convenient. It's hard to ignore being able to, you know, be if you want to give your family in Australia, you know, $100 or $50, just get in WhatsApp and then send a quick WhatsApp message. And boom, there it is. Exactly. I mean, that's 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 very hard to ignore. And it's very hard to imagine that that isn't going to take off in one way or another. So I agree. I think that Facebook has an overall kind of is a bit distrusted, but I mean, the convenience of this speaks for itself. So we'll see. We'll I mean, see. Yeah. we're going to do a full episode on this. I mean, there's so much more to unpack, but for the sake of time, I think that we should just leave it there and move on and then dive deep into it next time. What do you think? Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. That's going to be a really interesting conversation. We're going to have an expert cryptocurrency expert on that episode as well. So stay tuned. Uh, plug. That's a plug for our next episode. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we're going to round this thing off with one more article. This one is about unionization in the gaming industry. This is this is something I actually think is, is super, super interesting. I, I follow the gaming industry. I'm kind of like weirdly obsessed with it to the point where I just like watch YouTube videos of games that I don't even own or play. I just like to do that. I don't know. I so I really, I'm just, I'm just into this. So For the past few years, game developers have uh, increasingly sought to unionize amid growing concerns over layoffs and burnout in the industry. And today, well, not today, but uh, Democratic presidential contender Bernie Sanders applauded their efforts. This is what his quote is. The video game industry made $43 billion in revenue last year. The workers responsible for that profit deserve to collectively bargain as part of a union. Sanders said in a tweet, I'm glad to see unions like IATSE and the broader game workers movement organizing such workers, end quote. The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the IATSE, which works to organize creatives, responded to Sanders by saying, quote, too often workers in the entertainment industry are underpaid and overworked because they are so passionate about their crafts. By joining together and negotiating as a group, we can make our workplaces better. End quote. I'm just gonna I'm gonna pause there. What do you what are your thoughts? Look, as a lefty, I am a lefty. <laughs> huge fan of unionization. And you know, we have seen examples of exploitation of, of the works for gaming companies. Just before Red Dead Redemption 2 was released last year now? Yeah, uh, late last year. You know, they were saying we're having 50, 60 hour time crunches. And so people were staying at their desks literally all night to finish this game. Uh huh. And that's an issue, first and foremost, for the health and safety of the workers, but also I would say for the, the product quality of the game that they're producing. So, as someone who also enjoys games, a healthy and happy worker, creates a better game, in my opinion. Someone who is being exploited for their time and their money, they will just create a substandard game. So that's entirely selfish on my point. But at the same time, I also do believe that, you know, we should always have certain conditions that, that, you know, workers have to be working in. Yeah. So for the work, for the work, first of all, I will say that it has been widely reported of the abuses that have happened in the gaming industry over the last two years. I mean, and it's been kind of shocking because it's been so, so many different companies on so many different projects. The notion of a happy, healthy workplace producing a better game, that's kind of hard for me to buy. Not because I think that kind of logically, of course, that that would be the case. But you have to, but then I think about projects that have been released under what has been reported as unhealthy and unhappy workplaces. The example that comes to mind first is the Witcher three, mm-hmm. um, the wild hunt. That game is just, I mean, it's, it's kind of speaks for itself. It's incredible. It's one, it's won it's awards. A lot of people say it's, it's the best game ever. 
and it's 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 great. I mean, it's it is a great great piece of content. But that's been a lot of people are are saying that kind of work cycle was was terrible. So I mean, I think great games are produced under these terrible terrible conditions. Having said that, though, having said that, I think the problem has become almost cultural in the gaming industry. I'm gonna uh, talk about one example in particular, Bioware. So Bioware has been struggling a lot lately. Bioware just released Anthem, which is, you know, they've been working on this huge project they, project they've been working on. You know, there's been a lot of controversy. A lot of people have been reporting that it's it's just been terrible and people have there's been leadership changes and the narrative has changed multiple times and and so on and so forth. And when it released, it was absolutely horrid. I mean, I I bought the full package. I was all in on Anthem. I thought it, this was going to be BioWare's redemption. I was wrong. It was really, really bad. It wasn't done. And you could tell that, you know, BioWare is kind of in flux right now. The project before that was uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, which was also really, really bad. It wasn't done. Just kind of seemed like BioWare was in flux. BioWare has this, or it's alleged, it's been reported, has a kind of a cultural saying that I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's something like, you know, the magic always comes at the end or something like that. And essentially what it what it means is that it's expected to that crunch is almost is part of their magic, right? Like they have this cycle and, you know, all, a lot of things are up in the air. But then in the last year or, or six months, everybody works like, f- you know, 60 hour weeks and then it just comes together and it gets figured out. That's worked for them, though. That's worked for them on the Mass Effect series. That's worked for them on uh, the Dragon Age projects as well. But the problem in my in my eyes is it's 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 ingrained in their culture. Like it's it's part of their mantra, right? It's not like, oh, well, we're gonna develop this project and if it doesn't work well, then we're gonna have to crunch to figure it out. It's almost just like, welcome to Bioware, where we crunch for the last six months to year. You know what I mean? And I think that's the issue. Even if it's worked, it's also failed. Having said that though, I I don't know. I I just don't think unions are always the answer, like the the godsend that that some people think they are. I think unions, there's a lot of issues with unions. But I do, you know, I just feel like the gaming industry is, it's so profitable. Mm-hmm. But and it, but the abuses have been so wide, widespreadly reported that, you know, maybe maybe it should happen. Maybe they should uh, unionize. I just wonder how it would affect the, the, the product at the end. Well, I mean, that's a really good question. But I would also say that the time crunch, that can still happen even with unionization. People can volunteer to work longer hours. There's no, I don't see any issue with that, provided that they're volunteering. But so while the time crunch will still happen, what unionization allows is the workers to be able to collectively bargain. And through that, and through having proper representation of people who can talk to the management, they can pass law, you know, pass pass uh, work requirements that are favorable to them. It may not, I mean, I find it very hard to believe that it would negatively affect the output in terms of the game that is being produced. I just think that it gives them more of an opportunity to be able to have their voices heard. And I think that in pretty much every single aspect of life, the more people are able to speak up and talk about things that are happening to them, um, and the more that they're able to have people who represent them to their management, the better. Yeah. And I think that, I don't think the product, I don't think the game itself would be affected. Although I do want to address your first point. If people will, would volunteer for the crunch, I have a hard time believing that they would. I just do. I think that if if it was in their power to not, they would just be like, nah, I'm, I, I'd rather. I mean, sure, there might be some volunteers, but it's not going to. I mean, maybe if it affected their pay greatly, like if there was like double overtime or something like that. A lot of these people are on salary, though, so it doesn't even really affect their pay. But I mean, who knows? Like n- n- neither of us would know about that one. But I will say this. I, I feel like it probably wouldn't affect the product itself, the game. But I do think it could affect this the, the way that games are released by these this deadline mechanic that exists today. So what I mean by that is that major AAA projects, any project, even indie projects, there will be a kind of dev cycle where nobody talks about the game. There's a bunch of NDAs that are signed and everybody's working on this like hush hush project. And it's like there's code words for the project and, and everything like that. Then there becomes this point in the project 
quite before the project is actually finished, where they start to do a little bit of like reveals, like marketing. A lot of the times this happens through major conferences like E3 and PAX. And then they'll like drop a trailer here, drop a trailer there. Mm-hmm. But they're still working on the game. And then that that kind of starts to mature and mature. They're still working on the game. But quickly after that, I mean, relatively so in the full cycle of the of the development of the project, they drop a release date. They tell people on this day, this game is going to be finished. And it's, you know, it could be a year from now, like Cyberpunk 2077 is releasing in, I think, September of like 2020. Right. But it's still it's still a, a, a specific day. Like this yeah. is when it's coming out. And there's going to be a time crunch. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, exactly. I think, and so my point is, is that if that's the mechanic that you that you roll these projects out, then it's 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 almost like asking for that crunch because when they give you the day, the game's not finished. It's not even close, right? Yeah. And and so what happens is they they hope that it all works out by that time, but sometimes it doesn't. Oftentimes, actually, it doesn't. There's a lot of things that come up that you know in a dev cycle are pretty you're used to and you never know you can't predict those things and so what happens is because they have that date and you know a lot of these companies these development companies have like larger companies above them that are holding them to that there comes the crunch where you're like well shit i gotta finish this project by this day because i told everybody i would Mm -hmm. so i feel like if we if we unionized or if the gaming industry unionized maybe the mechanic of releasing the product changes right maybe we just start to say hey we're working on this project and we're going to let you know as the development cycle matures. And then as it matures, we, you know, we start to say, Hey, like we think this is going to be released this year, but I don't know. I don't know exactly how it would change, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that maybe it would move away from that hard, hard date deadline. And Instead, it would just say when we finish it, we'll, we'll roll it out. You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe that would be the effect. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. It's not. It's actually not. I, I think that it's it to me. It kind of seems healthier. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think, hey, you you let me know. Like I I wish so much so that I don't know if you you played Anthem or heard of. Her, I'm sure you've heard of it, but <laughs> yeah, I, I I wish so much so that Bioware would have gone with that. Hey, we're working on this. When it's finished, we're gonna roll it out instead of rolling something out that wasn't finished and then having everybody p- pay you know, premium dollar for this product that wasn't done. Mm-hmm. And now trying to backtrack and trying to say, well, I mean, we're going to, you know, patch it and we're going to update it and so on and so forth. I don't know. I just think that that's, that might be the healthier way to go. And if unions produce that, then, Hey, I'm all for them. But I also think there's a lot of problems with unions. Yep. Um, but no unions are not perfect. There is no doubt about that. There have been countless cases of unions actually, you know, hindering a whole lot of elements, but I will always side on the workers just being able to argue right for this themselves. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's uh, that is the conclusion of the first episode of Tectonic Shifts. Yay! We did it. Okay. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye.